0: OK, Rosemary, thank you for joining us all the way from California. And thank you for our audience for joining us today on our last day of the Future of Freight Festival. So we've been talking a lot about offshoring and reshoring and kind of this pullback in globalization during this conference. Uh, you know, reshoring's really just been kind of a long time buzzword, but it seems like things are quickly changing that reshoring is becoming part of a company's competitive advantage part of what they really want to do and what they want to explore. So my first question for you, Rosemary, is how bad does it have to get? How um, challenging does uh, offshore manufacturing have to get in order for a company to, you know, reorganize how they manufacture, how they transport their goods and reshore it back to the U.S.? Well, that's
1: uh, a good question. I, I think... Um up until the pandemic, uh, there was kind of a slow build of, uh, of companies that were considering reshoring. And we were working with with companies to do to, to do total cost of ownership and modeling and so forth. But when the pandemic hit, I think the, the difference was risk was introduced in a way that had never been introduced before. So um, so many companies experienced shortages in parts. Um, they were unable to get uh, products from China. Um, the ports were opened and closed in China and opened and closed, and that's still going on today. The, the uh, freight rates from uh, Asia to the U.S., quintupled, and even more. I have a client in Chicago who told me they're paying 17 times more for their freight than they were oh before the pandemic. So the shortage of parts was one thing. Um, the risk in terms of being able to serve your customers was another. And all these things and, and, and the variables that are included really made executives sit up and take notice. And uh, instead of a slow build of reshoring, now we're seeing a, a significant amount of activity.
0: And for those who aren't familiar with your work, you know, you've worked for decades in helping companies uh, explore offshore manufacturing. And now with the Reshore Institute, kind of looking at the flip side of the coin. So tell us a little bit about your work and what you've noticed. uh... Sure.
1: So, um, yeah, actually, I didn't just help companies explore. I helped them offshore for 15 years, um, set up lots of factories in China, Spent lots and lots of time in China, um, helped companies source and manufacture there. Um, and then at the 2012 presidential election, uh, both Mitt Romney and Barack Obama were China bashing like crazy. And and I'm like, oh, man, I can't tell anybody what I do for a living. You know, this is awful. <laughs> um, but it, what happened was it really started to spark uh, conversations between my clients. I was uh, in global supply chain consulting at the time, doing this work in China. And uh, a lot of my clients said, you know, would it be possible to bring uh, manufacturing back? And that uh, then resulted in us putting together a methodology and approach to how to determine whether or not to reshore. Uh, and out of that, uh, birthed the uh, Reshoring Institute. So today, the Reshoring Institute is a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. And we help companies through small consulting projects. We do um, deep dive research and we work with 50% of our mission is to work with graduate student interns who um, learn then, And we we teach them all about manufacturing and global supply chains uh, because they're going to be the factory managers and leaders and CEOs of the future. So that combination of doing the work and teaching people for the future has really gained momentum. And now, um, you know, reshoring is is the thing. Is it? So it, it's really about avoiding risk. It's not really so much. You can't
0: really uh, cut down on labor costs, of course. It's really about avoiding risk when you, that, that seems to be the big motivator for, for a lot of reshoring.
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, definitely risk has been the big variable that's, fueled the momentum. Uh, But, you know, you still have to look at the total cost. I mean, businesses are, um, uh, you know, they're economic animals and are looking at um, profit and loss all the time and uh, an economic analysis of making strategic decisions. So uh, in that case, you, you have to look at the total costs, including the labor costs, the ability to automate, um, the proximity to markets. Uh, certainly, sustainability and circularity are, are current topics. So there's a whole host of things now. But risk is kind of the push, I think, that really made companies sit up and take notice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there a type
0: of industry or a type of uh, type of manufacturing that's best for? For reshoring because I can imagine you know fast fashion textiles that's a labor is a huge part of that industry you know super low margin but maybe something like electronics or you mentioned plastics manufacturing before I imagine that's maybe a little more suited for uh reshoring
1: yeah so you know we're really seeing efforts across the board in all industries I think one of the industries that um Seems to be very active is uh, plastics. Um, so, for years, the plastics had gone overseas. Uh, mold making um, in the plastics industry was in China for sure. Um, you could get a mold for a product um, in China at about one tenth of the cost that it would be in the US. So, mold making was interesting and then the resultant production. Um, but because of the way plastics are used in manufacturing, um, it's proximity to market and, and order processing time is really, really important. So a lot of plastics companies have done is they're still having molds made overseas, but are, are starting to produce more and more in the U S. So that's, that's one area. Um, fast fashion is an interesting model. Um, uh, so if people in the audience don't know what fast fashion is, it's, you know, like H&M and uh zara and some of the popular high fashion high turnover uh kind of companies and a lot of their stuff is still made overseas and as you mentioned it it's high <clears throat> high touch labor uh which means you want to look for a low low cost labor market but w- what fast fashion does is they continue to produce certain models like a <clears throat> a straight skirt for example um, will be exactly the same model shape and, and form, whether it's summer or winter. So different fabrics and different seasons. And that's the way they make things really fast. And then in the U S um, those companies also choose local suppliers hmm. to complement their product line. So they have some local content to it. Um, so it's kind of a mixed model supply chain. Um, other, other industries uh, electronics, Sort of, Um, you know, the region in China um, just um, west of, west and north of Hong Kong, um, the Pearl River Valley. So Guangzhou, Dongguan, Xinjiang, those uh, three, it's a megalopolis actually. And it is the electronics uh, production of the world is there, I think. Uh, well over 50% of the electronics are produced there. Mm. So those things, especially the small components that are really inexpensive, are likely to stay in that region for a while. Um, uh, other electronics, more high-end, might might come back here. Certainly semiconductors. So we're, we're really excited about what's happening in semiconductors. Um, you know, all these new plants that are opening in Ohio and, and last week was announced upstate New York. Uh, Phoenix area, so companies are investing in semiconductor production in the U.S., which is essential, essential that we do that. Um, With the geopolitical situation uh, in China, you know, it's very likely it's like it's going to happen. China is going to take over Taiwan. It's just a matter of when. And once that happens, the biggest semiconductor producer in the world is TSMC in Taiwan, Uh, And once that happens, then we're very vulnerable to chips that are made overseas. So it's imperative that we build these uh, uh, semiconductor fabs in the U.S. in order to uh, mitigate that risk. Uh, And, you know, it's a big investment and it's just terrific. It's really exciting. Do you find that countries
0: like Vietnam or Malaysia or Indonesia, they're a little bit more insulated from these sorts of from, you know, the political influence of China and these sorts of uh, threats from, from China specifically? Yeah,
1: I mean, you would say that. And there is certainly I've had lots of clients that have moved production out of China and into Vietnam. Um, the problem with Vietnam is they only have 90 million people and uh, they're sort of full up. Uh, So that's that's one problem. Another problem is the the sophistication and the, uh, you know, the quality and the productivity is way lower than you would find in China. Um, I had occasion to visit uh, factories for an athletic shoe producer. I worked on a a project and visited all their factories in China and Vietnam. And uh, Vietnam was about a third of the cost of China. Um, however, when you compare the productivity rates, the rework rates, the quality issues and so forth, it, it was clear that China was a better option economically. So, um, you know, in, in China, they were paying their workers $300 a, a month plus uh, room and board and, uh, for the workers. In Vietnam, they don't live on campuses, so there's no room and board and they were paying uh, workers $200 a month. And in both cases, they got bonused on extra production. Um, so the difference was a third in labor costs, but that's not the whole viewpoint. You really have to look at the total cost.
0: Yeah, I feel like there is absolutely so much buzz around Vietnam. And the fact that the country is much smaller <coughs> uh, is, is something that I feel like isn't brought up very frequently. How do you raise productivity and increase productivity in these uh, new, new kinds of markets outside of China?
1: Yeah, so we just um, released a major study. So if anybody's interested on comparative labor rates in 12 countries around the world, um, it's, it's on, our, on the landing page on our website, which is uh, reshoringinstitute.org. Uh, and the comparison tells us that the three lowest cost labor markets now are um, Vietnam, Mexico and India. So there is a, a move if you have if you're producing a high touch, high labor content product to move to a low cost labor market makes sense because that's so much of the component of your total cost. Um, Other companies don't have such a high-touch labor, Mm -hmm. and so they have the ability to move to other places. Um, Right now, China is no longer the low-cost labor market. It's right smack in the middle. If you look at the charts that we have in that study, you can see China has really moved up the cost curve. Uh, So, you know, looking at comparative costs has to be overlaid with the kind of industry that you're in, Mm -hmm. uh, how much labor content is there how you improve productivity through automation. So, you know, when we're bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., we, we don't want the 23-cent-an-hour T-shirt production. We don't want that back. And the reason why is because it doesn't pay a living wage. If you can't pay a living wage to workers, then um, you have to supplement their income with with uh, with welfare. Mm-hmm. We don't want to create a welfare state. So... What we want to come back is the more sophisticated kind of manufacturing uh, that requires a higher skill level and pays a higher wage. Yeah. So we like to say the jobs went out like a tsunami and they're coming back in raindrops, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but really the, it's those more sophisticated jobs. So we want to build a workforce that instead of putting pegs in holes, they're running the robot that puts the pegs in holes. So that's a different skill set. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's interesting because uh,
0: it, uh, Leland Miller of China Beige Book, I think it was yesterday, was talking about how China's OK with losing some of these, uh, you know, low cost, uh, low wage manufacturing jobs. They're also trying to compete with the U.S. to be this, um, you know, yep. running the robots that puts the pegs in the holes. Um, so it seems like both the U.S. and China are going to be competing for these more... Uh, specialized, uh, high-touch manufacturing jobs. I'm curious also if you could talk a little bit about how you think uh, the, uh, the the tensions in China and Taiwan, how do you think that's going to impact, you know, semiconductor manufacturing and other sorts of uh, manufacturing we see in Taiwan? You no,
1: know, I, I think it already has. So, you know, I, I spent 15 years offshoring to China. I know what the benefits are and uh, and the capabilities. I mean, it's phenomenal what China is able to do. I mean, they make Lamborghinis in in China, you know. Um, So, yes, high quality um, products for sure. And I think, you know, over the last 25 years, China has gone from a kind of an agri-environment, low-cost, rural, uneducated, unsophisticated, to a really super high-tech environment with a lot of manufacturing capability. So, they've moved up the maturity curve in terms of manufacturing. Um, and that's part of the reason why the labor has increased as well is because different skill level that are required and and so forth. So, um, you know, when you're trying to do that comparison, I, I think most companies, you know, and I'm actually encouraging clients to move out of China. I think it's I think it's too risky now. I mean it's the environment has completely changed in the last 5 years. Our um relationship with China has um deteriorated significantly and as um the last administration you know started the trade war and was China bashing China retaliated American bashing and uh, Americans don't have a good reputation in China anymore. I mean we, you know they're being told that Americans are evil and uh Money hungry, and we're you know we're only after get making the most margins and and, and so forth. And uh, they you know we point to their human rights issues with the Uyghurs in in far western China. They po- point to our human rights issues with like George Floyd, yeah. right? And they publicize that in China, saying American has human rights issues and and so forth. So there's the relationship has deteriorated significantly. Uh, China is doing a lot of saber rattling. Uh, Xi Jinping, you know, at the 20th Party Cong- Congress two weeks ago, pretty much stated that they're going to uh, bring Taiwan back into the fold, either uh, in a welcoming way or by force. I mean, he said it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe it. I think it's just a matter of time.
0: Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like this is kind of like the beginning of the end for our... Uh, perhaps overly reliant relationship on China?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I like to say that supply chain people have gotten a lot smarter in the last 10 years. Um, you know, it used to be my clients would say, we got to go to China because, uh, uh, because it's a low cost country and because our, our uh, competitors are there and take me to China, you know, help me set up the factory. So I was doing that today's environment, this same supply chain people and, you know, uh, COOs are saying we have to consider a lot of things here. So it's not just uh, the labor comparison. It's time to market. It's sustainability. So, you know, this is a near and dear issue to manufacturers heart. And and that means um, the closer you can get manufacturing to your market, the less you have a carbon footprint, so you know that idea of getting things manufactured close to your market is really important um, you know and then you know there's this thing that we call economic patriotism, and that's uh, that is companies and executives who believe it's the right thing to do for America. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um carbon
0: footprints. I'm, I'm curious to talk a little bit more about fuel prices, energy prices. Obviously, that's been a big conversation in uh, transportation, the trucking industry this past year. How is rising energy and fuel prices, how is that going to impact some of these reshoring or nearshoring efforts? Yeah,
1: so obviously um, increasing fuel prices is going to add to the cost of any product. So that's a, that's a huge concern, not only for the transportation industry, but for every manufacturer. Um, that's, a, that's a big issue that we have to keep our eye on. And that means that um, the kind of manufacturing that has very low margins isn't going to be sustainable if those transportation costs are too high. So <clears throat> the, the bigger margin companies, um, the more sophisticated kind of manufacturing, it has less of an impact. The other side of that is energy costs uh, for running your manufacturing operations, electricity and water and gas. Um, and in the US, our, our um, electricity costs are very low compared to other parts of the world, including China. Hmm. China can be very expensive. The thing is, though, when you look at the total economic model, um, manuf- the uh, cost of energy, the cost of um, Energy to run your manufacturing plant is usually between 5 and 10% of your total cost. So when you look at the overall cost structure, electricity is pretty low part of the, that equation. So, you know, energy costs, electricity and so forth is kind of neutralized. Because of that, it's a fairly low component. Uh, fuel costs and so forth is a much higher percentage. Okay.
0: Unless you're in one of those really low-margin industries, in which case you're really going to be penny-pinching in terms of...
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of, like, um, low-margin consumer products, companies went out of business during the pandemic because the cost of getting a container from Asia to the U.S. went up so much, they, it just ate up all their margin. They just couldn't yeah. be sustained in that regard. So let's say
0: you're a company and you want to leave China, you want to end all your manufacturing in China... That doesn't seem like something you can just do overnight. So what are kind of the complications around that?
1: Yeah, leaving China can be a real problem. Um, I think there's a lot of companies that don't take into consideration uh, the issues around leaving China. So first of all, if you're in an industry that China wants to protect, a high-tech industry, for example, and you decide you're going to close shop and, and move somewhere else, move to Mexico, say, um, you have to get a permit from the Chinese government to do that. And that can take up to a year or maybe you'll never get it um, because Chinese don't want you to leave because you've got a special technology or something that they think is important for, for the Chinese people. So, you know, getting a permit is one thing and that can take quite, quite some time. Now, sure, you could lock the doors and turn off the light, get on an airplane, just leave. The problem with that is you may never be allowed back in you may be blacklisted and um if you look across the world the asian market is growing in double digits still so it's very likely that you want to you want to keep your eye on that market because that's you know potentially a lot of revenue for you so you don't want to like shoot yourself in, in the foot by doing the wrong thing so that's one thing another thing that a lot of companies don't realize is um Uh, most Chinese workers are on employment contracts. So uh, when you go to work in a Chinese factory, you sign an employment contract for a year or two. And if you are let go, if you're laid off, and and that doesn't happen all that often, but if you are, the employer has to pay out your contract. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you decide to leave China and you've got, you know, say a thousand workers, and they're on one or two-year contracts, you have to pay out all of those wages before you leave. And those wages are higher than um, maybe you expected in the first place. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, the other thing, I mean, there's lots of considerations, but the other big thing is if you have molds or tools or dyes or any assistance that you've provided to the Chinese, you're never getting that stuff back. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what your contract says, China, if China going to stop you from exporting that stuff, you're just never getting it back. And they consider it part of their infrastructure. So that's another issue. And then finally, you know, if you have uh, given the, the Chinese manufacturer your molds and your tools and your dyes, you've given them the blueprints for your products, you have taught them about your quality standards, they know who all your suppliers are, mm-hmm. and you decide to leave, they're not going to just go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning and they've forgotten all that. Yeah, they're not deleting the <laughs> files or going to the shredder. They're going to keep making your product and they're going to put a different kind of label on it, you know, a slightly different name maybe and compete with you in the world market. Mm. And that's a that's a huge issue. It has caused a lot of heartbreak with my, my clients mm. um, trying to leave China. Seems like it's, yeah, it seems like it's really challenging to
0: actually you know, actually leave and whatnot. And I imagine also the transportation infrastructure in China, you have these incredible giant ports and, you know, especially around Shenzhen and Guangzhou. Um, what's the transportation infrastructure like in Vietnam or Mexico or some of these other kind yeah. of like hot areas to, to move to? You know,
1: You know, a lot of Asian countries are building or uh, improving their infrastructure, but they're so far behind China. I mean, China has these mega ports that are just jaw-dropping, um, sophisticated, efficient, and so forth. This is part of the problem when you know, we saw all these containers backed up on the West Coast um, just you know, within the last year or so. And that's because we bought so much stuff during the pandemic, more imports than we've seen ever in history and a big spike. Uh, so there's all this stuff coming our way. And our ports are choked because we don't have the sophistication. So you've got to the port of um, Ningbo and, and, and uh, Shanghai or the port of Shenzhen, Hong Kong, all these ports are, you know, four or five times bigger than U.S. ports. So you've got a whole bunch of volume coming our way and, and we have a, a, a narrow pathway. So our ports are small and backwards in a lot of cases. We need to invest a lot. Plus there's a shortage of dredge companies around the ports or shortage of warehouses. And of course the trucker shortage.
0: Right. And the, there's been also quite a bit of labor uh, issues around uh, the port of Long Beach and LA currently there's this uh, conflict with the longshoremen and then you have AB five and there's all these sorts of definitely a lot of headwinds on the California ports for sure.
1: Yeah. And you know, this is, we're uh, we're a uh, market economy and and china is not so china can just say you know fine you got a labor dispute go to work anyway you know yeah i mean this is a different yeah environment
0: so with just a few minutes left you know uh when it comes to reshoring to the u.s what sort of regions what sort of uh industries are really leading the charge you know as a Detroit native. I I hope that some of it is moving to Michigan, but I understand that quite a bit of it is going to the Mountain West or Tennessee and other, you know, southeastern states. So tell us a little bit about what are the big regions that uh, the companies you're working with are eyeing.
1: Yeah, I think um, regionally, the southeast is very attractive because of the low wages and um, there aren't, there, it's not as unionized. Um, so, uh, and the availability of labor and so forth so you know that's pretty attractive plus each state usually offers incentives so you know by and large those are tax break incentives but now we're starting to see some incentives that are monetary incentives also for companies relocating for example uh, the state of utah just announced a multi-million dollar fund to help attract um, companies to Utah. So in some of the states are coming out with that sort of thing to make different places attractive. Uh, in terms of what industries are coming back, um, you know, it's kind of across the board. Uh, you know, plastics, I think, um are, you know, jumps out at me as being one that we see again and again and again. Lots of plastics companies are are um coming back. Um in terms of automotive, I, I would say, you know. It's a little bit different market because it's global, right? So, you know, the growth rates are much higher in in Asia than they are in the U.S. for the end product. Uh, So, you know, those kind of markets exist around the world. Um, And a a lot has moved to Mexico as well uh, Mm -hmm. to take advantage of USMCA uh, under the automotive rules. So there's, you know, quite a bit of activity coming there too.
0: And... One last question: What what is Europe's stance towards China at this point, and what what are European manufacturers, and uh, where where are they thinking about all this the
1: situation? Yeah, that's a that's a interesting question. So um, I would say the UK is um, kind of on, uh, on a par with us, trying to attract uh, reattract businesses to the Midlands area in the UK, which is the industrial area primarily. So um, there's reshoring going on there. Um, The other countries, to a certain extent, uh, are trying to bring some back, Germany. Also, Germany has a huge presence in China, though, surprisingly. They have, you know, sophisticated manufacturing and high-quality standards, and they went to China early on and set up factories. So we see that. And then we also see some companies that haven't performed well in China that that are coming back. At the Reshoring Institute, we had a—we uh, were part of a team in the EU um, that looked at—they uh, were the European Union funded a study uh, with universities all across Europe for uh, rebuilding manufacturing in Europe, and so we were part of that study for about three years. And um, you know, there's active programs going on for reshoring. Um, throughout europe the 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 problem is that you're resharing is sort of a three-legged stool it's mm-hmm. your company interest it's the government support for it and it's consumers demanding mm-hmm. local products and in europe they have only two of those components primarily and that's uh, the companies are interested in the consumers uh, but government kind of stays out of the way yeah
0: yeah i feel like the consumer interest question is interesting because consumers are interested in it and then they see the higher uh you know end cost for whatever it is they're buying
1: (laughs) well (laughs) yeah we did a a study on that it's also on our landing page um at reshoringinstitute.org. um then we surveyed 500 people across the u.s Mm -hmm. and asked them some really simple questions we said would you prefer to buy products that are made in the u.s and something like Sixty-five percent or eighty-five percent—I can't remember the number—said yes. They preferred um, products made in the U.S., and they were willing to pay between ten and twenty percent more for those products. So that's a really important statistic, and it's sort of a target for us. So we know that if we can get the cost within ten or fifteen percent of an overseas cost for building a product, Mm. we can charge a little bit more, and we can make the economics work for America.
0: Well, great. Thank you so much, Rosemary, for taking the time to share this with us. Thank you.